Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Let me toss out a few show titles. Bye Bye Birdie, All American, Golden Boy, Applause, Annie, more than a dozen Broadway shows, all with the same credit. Composer Charles Strauss, our guest today. Charles, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here. It's it's nice, and it's also cool. It's so hot out. Uh, yes, it has been a, a hot uh, July so far here yep. in New York. Yep. Bye Bye Birdie, 1960, your first Broadway credit, a show that won the Tony, won a Tony for you and your lyricist, Lee Adams, right. won a Tony for Dick Van Dyke. And a, Mike Stewart, I believe. Right? Yeah. A very uh, well-regarded show with a lot of novices on Broadway. Yeah. You guys were untried. Totally. I met Dick Van Dyke when when I was the piano player on a show called uh, The Girls Against the Boys, and we became kind of pals, and I used to say to him, uh, you know, gee, I wrote a show, you'd be very good. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then we, you know, when it came time and we finally got the money, everybody was looking for somebody else but Dick Van Dyke. So, uh, but he uh, he worked in good. And he was kind of a Broadway novice himself. Cheetah yeah. Rivera, of course, was very Cheetah. well known. Well, Cheetah's first show when she was a novice, was the Shoestring Review, uh-huh. which I was the musical director for, and she was signed on to just dance. And when I heard her voice, I shifted five songs towards her. But that's where she really started, uh, with us at the Shoestring. So when you did start on Bye Bye Birdie, you already had Cheetah in mind. You had Dick Van Dyke in no, mind, obviously. No, it's no, an interesting story, which is that the whole show was written for a girl who was Polish, and it was supposed to be Carol Haney who was going to do it. Uh-huh. And uh, every joke was about Poland, Polish jokes. The mother saying uh, uh, whatever the jokes were. I can't think of them right offhand. And uh, Carol, who was a kind of bad luck girl in a way, she worked with me for two weeks on the show. And then Lee Adams and Mike Stewart and Gower, champion, came down to her house uh, on uh, in the village and... Oh, she opened the door and she said, Hi, Gower. <laughs> oh, my God. And she had lost her voice. Oh, boy. And uh, looking back on it, it was a psychologically uh, uh, motivated or unmotivated uh, fear. And we sat around for about a half hour making polite conversation. I remember it vividly and then said, Well, we'll speak to you in a few weeks. And she was a star, by the way, and a most wonderful girl. And her husband, Larry Blyden, was to do the other part. And we sat around because we had just started to get money, which in itself is a long story. And uh, somebody, I forget who, but let's say it was Lee, just for discussion's sake, said, what about Cheetah? And everybody said, well, we all know her. Yeah, she would... well, of course, we can make all the jokes Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. So Spanish Rose could have been Polish Rose. It would have been, had, <laughs> but that song was written especially for Cheetah. Cheetah. But yes, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. But in getting your first Broadway show, there was an, even a novice producer. Edward Padula had been a yeah. stage manager. Was the show something he conceived? Was it something you all conceived and then found him to sign on as a producer? How, how do you get the first first gig in those days to do a Broadway show? Uh, he conceived of the idea. The word conceive is, is a little bit loaded in uh, 
a theater parlance because it sometimes carries legal obligations with it, and indeed that happened many years later. But the conception, the idea of, of, uh, of teenagers being a phenomenon, which nobody had really thought about, uh, was his. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a wonderful producer and a wonderful man and did the thing that is uh, very, very hard to uh, find in today's world, and that is he stuck by it, stuck by us, did the impossible, gathered money, uh, performers, et cetera, et cetera. I can never speak highly enough of them. Now, when when you and Lee Adams started work on writing the music for the show, were Dick Van Dyke and Cheetah Rivera already booked for it, or were you no. just writing music? We were just writing music and lyrics. There were Keep all kinds Carol of... Haney and Larry uh, Blyden. There was a mother who was going to be central to the thing, and she was to be played, Padula's idea, by Constance Bennett. Uh-huh. Uh, the whole uh, shape of the show changed. And we had... Five different book writers over the many years it took to get it on, two of whom were Mike Nichols and Elaine May wow. uh, for a short time. There were all kinds of people who came in and out of the uh, the picture, and Padula always remained steadfast and uh, and his eye on the uh, on the future. It's often said that the inspiration on the show was specifically Elvis Presley going into the army. You said that the initial idea came about simply doing a show about teenagers. Was it that the show was in development so long that that came along and became an element that you added in, or was it the driving force? Uh, It was not at the beginning the driving point. When (laughs) the last final and best writer, Michael Stewart, came into the picture, who, by the way, was one of our closest friends. We had worked together in Summer Stockton, and we suggested him from the beginning. But Padula, as I guess producers do, went for better names, more experienced people and all that, and we kept saying, Mike, Mike, Mike. When Mike finally did come in, the idea of making it a rock and roller, and I remember this vividly, was Lee's. We had a kind of thing that was going somewhere, but there was no... There was no drafting in the end. Lee said, why don't we do this about Presley, who had been drafted, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. It, it was years later when he was already out that we got the thing on. So since we have you sitting at a piano, let me ask, is there a lot of material that was cut from Bye Bye Birdie that you that you recall? Were there other, Obviously, there might have been more specific stuff, as you said, for, well, for one Carol comes Haney. To, or? One comes to mind, excuse me, because uh, – uh, my publisher is putting out a uh, folio with all the things from it. She asked me about it the other day, and there was a song which everybody liked called "Older and Wiser," and uh, it was sung in uh, uh, it was sung in thirds by them. It was very pretty. Older and wiser, we've grown up today. Older and wiser. It's better this way, sadder, but smarter. We've learned a lot. Sorry. There's just no future in giving all you've got. So no more romances. We'll stay fancy-free, older 
and wiser at last are we and it was decided that it was we all liked it they sounded beautiful together because it was in harmony and we all decided it was too slow and uh, Lee and I never had any trouble with taking songs out of shows and we put in what did I ever see in him instead it was uh, uh, something that just pepped up the show I always liked the song it's going to be included in a folio and if ever anybody wants to do it etc now, when you're writing a book musical, obviously you have a storyline in mind. Where does one start musically? What's the first song that you write for a musical like Bye Bye Birdie? Well, uh, it, that's, by the way, the, probably the most complicated question to answer because usually in my life, but I've read about it in the cases of other composers, Rogers and Cole Porter, when you're starting on a show, the 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 essential parts of it seem to be absolutely the thing that you should get down. So opening numbers very often are written about, here we are in Paris, we know we, we're going to find the treasure, and because we know that's what the, uh, that's what the show is going to be about. And in my case, invariably, that song is thrown out, maybe used somewhere else, maybe the tune can be saved, something like that. Uh, Annie being a good example, Martin Charnin and I wrote five different openings. Uh, you were up at uh, you were up at uh, Green Mansions. You may remember. No, you came a little later. But there were five different openings. One going moderately well. That's the the problem with it. They go moderately well, and people don't say. But you get to know after a while that ain't waking up the audience. And uh, we started that show five different ways. It seemed important that we should mark the depression, that we should mark Roosevelt, that we should uh, uh, mark the little girls. That, But it wasn't about that. It was about one girl and loneliness and her going off. And We found it in Washington. Uh, but uh, we don't start... The, the number that finally became the opening of, uh, of Bye Bye Birdie is a number that even then the audience didn't they, I can't say they slept through it, but they weren't certainly wide awake for it. And the opening became, in everybody's mind, the telephone hour. Which was a couple of scenes in. Which is uh, a, a one long scene in, right. as far as I know, as so far there, as I remember. So there was the overture, then the scene for a while before the opening. And number. that scene for a while had some of Mike Stewart's cleverest writing, which was originally something like eight minutes we begged and we cut it down to six and then finally to four minutes and it had a song which people today tell me they like but nobody remembered. They always think that it's, it's, it started with uh, Hi Nancy, Hi Helen, what's the story Morning Glory? But it didn't. It started out with uh, an English teacher an English teacher if only you been an English teacher, we'd have a little apartment in Queens. I'd have a dad on vacation, etc., etc. Because it's the long, it's it's the it's the Albert Rose it's May scene, which sets up their whole relationship, and then the idea of the contest comes comes. But after no, the that. idea of the contest came in that scene. Right. In fact, everything but the kitchen sink was in that scene. And it was very funny because it was all interesting material and all very funny. Mike Stewart, 
for those of you who remember, is a very, very funny as well as wonderful writer. And uh, it just passed by people. It's so the, the, the early songs when you started work on Bye Bye Birdie, that you, the first couple of songs you wrote, were they ultimately used in the show or did they kind of vanish um, along the way? The, uh, there was an, an old song that we had had just a part of in a review in Green Mansions, a summer resort. Uh-huh. Lee and I had written a, uh, uh, a show called, uh, I think it was called Comedy and Tragedy, but it had the sad mask and the happy mask mm-hmm. of drama, and there was a clown in it. And on the side of the stage, there was a Greek chorus singing very gloomy things, and on the other side, some peppy musical comedy people... And it was a thing called tragedy comedy, and it was about there. And the clown in the middle sang the beginning. We never used it. It was not a whole song. Well, gray skies are going to clear up, put on a happy face. And then it went, ooh, ooh, ooh. And there may have been another section, but it was never a completed song. There was a number. Am I talking too much? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> there was a number in, uh, in the original Birdie which was made to order, we thought, for Gower's talents. And that was when Van Dyke and Cheetah went out to Sweet Apple and Ed Sullivan was going to put on a show. Uh, Dick Van Dyke has a very elastic face and rubbery manner of, of things. And he was putting on the show. And this was the device we had, and Gower obviously liked it, which was all the different colored lights would play on Dick's face as he was setting the lights. And he would say, and he would sing this song, which we now finished, called "Put on a Happy Face," and it was a very rich number in many ways. It had Gower's gifts for this, and he'd go into the yellow lights and put on a happy face, and it would be in green. And and uh, the number was was very interesting, and it didn't work well. It didn't work. It didn't bomb, but it didn't work well. And Dick Van Dyke was not getting huge star applause. I mean, that much we kind of knew about. At the end, Cheetah got terrific applause, and Dick was a kind of also-ran, in a sense. I mean, everyone liked him. I don't want to say that. And I said, which I'm very quick to do, throw the number out, let's get another number. It's it's a bad-slash-good habit of mine. I, I I feel confident that I can always write something. I don't know better, but I can always write something else. And uh, the number was out of the show, except Marge Champion <laughs> came up with the idea. She said, why doesn't Dick do it to uh, two girls who are very sad about Bertie leaving? And he just cheers them up, and they do a tap dance. And I said to Marge, I think that's, that's a, it's a terrible idea because, you see, I was kind of, not fresh out, but I was near coming out of music school, and I had a... You know, a thing about myself as a composer. And you had a serious musical background, Eastman School of Music and studying a tango with Aaron Copeland. Right. I worked with Copeland. I think I was working with Copeland at the time. And I said, I I just am not comfortable with starting my first time on Broadway and doing a tap dance with two little girls. And Mm -hmm. anyway, she prevailed. And thank God she did, because the moment that song was done, the audience lit up. They just applauded. And Dick 
was the star of the show, or at least, you know. So you threw out one song. You had a little bit of another song that you then turned in to put on a happy face? Is that basically what That's correct, yeah. And who who thought of that? You or Lee? The the idea of using the song in the first place. Yeah, of of, of using that little bit of the song you had written years earlier. Yeah, Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember, but I, I think it stuck in our minds that we had something that... Uh, and then it's 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 a kind of melodic progression I like. I've used it in other songs. So I don't know. It just uh, but it, it it had never been finished. Yeah, I think it was just that much. Ba ba dee ba da da dee da 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 da. And then everyone just dum 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 dum. And then having what? Yeah. And then having what Marge Champion suggested in mind, it gave you the impetus to write. When we did it for the number, we had finished the song. Uh huh. But when Marge suggested it as a way of keeping the whole song in, which I didn't want to do, uh, she prevailed. Oh, so you ended up keeping you, you had the song. We had the song, but the number wasn't working. Uh, Gower's so you just restaged was, it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now I yeah, it. and put it in a different place for, with a yeah. whole different purpose. Yeah. And right away it caught on. As I say, the first time he did, he said, "Cheer up, little girls, and uh, things are going to be things are going to be all right." Now, and right away. The, you could feel the audience came to life. You talked a moment ago about working in a musical progression, setting up that song, then other songs you've written in that same sort of a way. What other songs that you've written work in that same sense of a musical progression? Or Oh, uh, well, I was thinking of something. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, actually, there are a number of songs, some that I didn't write, so I can't say. Uh, but... Uh, uh, Dita, uh, uh, Boy, the tunes when you're place songs everybody, and uh, which is one of your most famous songs from All in the Family, of course. In, in some ways, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people are probably not aware that you wrote that theme song that Archie Bunker well, and Edith sang. You can be aware of it now. <laughs> <laughs> Do a little bit more of that, just for old times' sake. Uh, boy, the tunes Glenn Miller played, songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew where you were hiding. Girls were girls and men were men. Mister, we could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare state Everybody pulled his weight Gee, our old LaSalle Ran great Those were the I can't tell you how many times I listened to that on television without understanding that final lyric, G.R. Old LaSalle, which was a car. Me and I, (laughs) for people whose names just went by in a crawl, we we must have gotten 30 or 40 letters. One, I always remembered from a a, a woman somewhere who wrote it out phonetically. She said, I finally got it. And she had written out something like G, like J-E-E. Our H O U R. It made no sense at all, but she got it all right phonetically. It was right. Mm-hmm. It bothered people, and and of course, it was just a wonderful, wonderful choice of Lee's. The La Salle was a kind of middle class, upper grade car. If it said Chevrolet ran great, people may have understood it. I know. <laughs> but a question about that song, because I read that the original idea for for that even that song 
was that it was going to be done initially by a chorus. Yes. And at some point, there was a decision made to use the leads. And first, I'm curious because by a chorus, one presumes it would be very elegant and everybody yeah. would hit all the notes just right. And, of course, it's rather famously not the most mellifluous uh, rendition of a song. Yeah. And how much, both in that case and in other shows, do the performers change your intention or do you sometimes change to, to what the performers bring to it? Well, in, in this particular case, it was, it was my idea. Uh, Norman Lear wanted it sung uh, with background singers and orchestra. And he paid us at the time. I think I'm not, I'm not maligning him when I say this. I think we got $300 and he had nothing left. And I said, and he wanted us to, to pay for this too. At least that was the implication I remember. I can't say that should he hear this. Uh, but he wanted it sung with a backstage, this and an orchestra. And I said it couldn't be done, but I reminded him of something that happened in my uh, when I was a kid, which was among my happiest memories as a child, and that is my mother was a piano player, and she used to sit down and play all the pop songs of the day, and we all sat around. And I said, why don't you do that? Have the family sitting around the piano... And then it turns out that Carol O'Connor could play a little bit, but it was me playing anyway. Oh, really? Well, yeah, at the wow. beginning. Until they found out after about a year they had to pay me every week for uh, <laughs> for being a piano player. And then, then it stopped. Uh, and uh, it became the logo. But it really came from my family background. And for what it's worth, I take credit. Well, following up on Howard's question about when the performers start performing your your music. How do you feel the first time you hear your music performed? The first time Dick Van Dyke sang, the first time Lauren Bacall sang in Applause, or Andrea McArdle sang Tomorrow in, in Annie. The first time you hear that, do you think to yourself, gee, that's exactly the way I envisioned, or that's not at all what I had in mind? Or, um, I would say uh, it's closer to the first. I mean, I'm so, I'm so uh, honored by the fact that particularly, you know, actors of that caliber are doing it in the, in the first place. I am not the kind of person who says, uh, no, you're doing it all wrong. First of all, if actors are given their their head, so to speak, uh, they always find something, if they're intelligent. To, so uh, I would say that uh, I can't think of a... Uh, once in a while, in a in a part, when somebody is singing a wrong note over and over again, and I know the pianist or the musical director has not caught it, and I can catch it, I, I will say something. But uh, basically, I've performed all the songs for the director, for the actors. They have readings where uh, the music uh, musical director or assistant is not in it yet, and I will still be playing it. So it's kind of in their mind. In the case of Annie... Uh, Martin is a very, very sensitive musician himself, and he knew exactly every uh, every kind of nuance mm. that we both had wanted, and I never had any worry about that. Cole Porter, Richard Rogers were famously sticklers for adhering to every note exactly as written. Sing it the way it's written, exactly the way they, they did it. How about Charles Stress? How do you feel about changes to what, what you wrote? Well, it, it depends uh, what changes... Uh, mean uh if there are changes in the in the melody i would feel a little bit uh put out by it but i've 
I, I've lived with that too. But changes as far as, uh, I mean, my background is jazz as well as serious music. And uh, I think if the first time out somebody had sung, Gray skies are gonna clear up, uh-huh. put on a happy face, I think I would, I know I would have objected. Uh, so it's a, uh, it, it, it has a, uh, on the other hand, I, I don't want, as Rogers was reputed to have wanted, and I think this is so because I know uh, several of his relatives, he wanted da, 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 de, da, 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 and he wanted that rhythm. I don't think that ever occurred to me in any song that I've written to go, gray skies are gonna clear up, if that was indeed my original conception. And uh, so it's it's a toss-up. So when Jay Z, the rapper, sings one of your songs, he can do he can do what he wants. That sold over <laughs> four million records and is still selling. <laughs> it worked yeah. for you. Well, after the enormous success of your first show, you had for the next couple of shows you had a, you had a pattern, which was the next show, All American, didn't didn't run very. Yeah, long. it wasn't it wasn't the it got moderate reviews. Uh, we got a couple of songs that uh, that lasted or seemed to have uh, one in particular, and uh, it was it was not a it was a trying period for uh, many of us. I mean, uh, uh, Josh Logan was going through a lot of serious problems, and my mother was uh, dying at the time. I, this has nothing to do with what you're asking, and uh, I, I it did okay. But it's a wonderful book by Mel Brooks. It is so funny. And Josh, uh, I, I, I loved him and love him. He was the nicest man in the world. He was the wrong director for uh, Mel Brooks. And certainly Brooks, very inexperienced as a book writer at that point. Uh, he'd done one other show. I can't remember if it came before or after, which uh, was... The, the Cockroach, Archie right, and Archie Mahittable. And then he certainly did well years later uh, oh, as a book writer. About His, about, his <laughs> cleverness is beyond compare. But then from there, you went to another very successful show, Golden Boy. Yes. And... That was we were talking. We already talked a lot about performers and material. That clearly was a star vehicle show in terms of Sammy Davis Jr. and a lot of people yes. continue to think of that show as being so linked to him. Uh, were you always writing it for Sammy? Yeah, we. Uh, he was an impossibly. First of all, he was the greatest star. Period. But for a black man. Who, there were no black stars. Maybe in the old days, Bill Robinson, uh, and 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 a few others. But there were no people who uh, got people in the. There was there was nobody who put people in the seats. Sammy was not only that, but on top of it, he was Jewish, and uh, it was a. There was just no question when he agreed to do it. It was against everybody's advice, his agents particularly, William Morris. I mean, they were so against it. Here was a man who was making, I think at that time, 60000 a week. You have to say, well, do that by three in, or four. In, famous in Las Vegas in nightclubs yeah. with Sinatra. The and as a matter of fact, that's where we got to know and write uh, Golden Boy because we followed Sammy all around the, the world. And um, uh, when, so when he agreed to do it, and he didn't sign his contract, by the way, until, you know, like three days before we were going into rehearsal, something like that. That's not accurate. 
So, yes, yes, we did write it under his guidance to say, to use a, a mild word. If he didn't like something, well, he would tell us. And, but he did like everything. He was, he was fine. Uh, the big trouble with Sammy was, uh, as far as I was concerned, is he would make it all his own right away. He would make us... M- many times, Lee and I played songs for the first time, and I'm, I'm not so shy now, as you can see. But back then, I promise you, I was extremely shy, and um, I was used to playing it in, alone in a room. And also, I'm playing songs that are well-known, so I have a confidence about We would be playing new songs that were complicated, and uh, Sammy was to meet us at 2 in the morning after his last show and would show up at 4 with eight chorus girls in tow, and the waiter's still there, and he'd say, okay, I hear that good song, play that for me. And I would start playing... Uh, a song, and then right away he had to play for the crowd of chorus girls. So he would start singing it. He's terribly musical, but he would sing it wrong, slightly, you know. But there was no stopping him because all the chorus girls are now bopping <laughs> with him and and all that. It was very tough on Lee and me. Uh, but what he gave us was and is incalculable. I mean, he is a star. But the danger of those certainly sort of star vehicle shows from that era is they become so inextricably linked with the original performer. And Golden Boy is a show that wasn't seen a lot, but over the past couple of years, you've even had the opportunity to revisit it a bit. And what was it like looking at that material and and revising it with with some different collaborators um, so many years later? Uh, it was it was and is a wonderful experience. It's a uh, great play. We worked for uh, three years with Odette's. Uh, very closely, we became pals, and we always worked out there because he didn't like to fly. And uh, he was a very uh, <laughs> uh, disappointed and, and often despondent man. It's a it's a wonderful story. His life, I, I wish. And 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 Bill Gibson's uh, wife has written the most incredible book about him uh, as the American artist. Uh, he went through the. Uh, the the left wing, if I may say, right wing Hollywood, uh, New York dichotomies in his life, and suffered every one of them as though he was in a vise. And uh, uh, but it's a it's a show that has wonderful resilience and wonderful uh, pieces. And I would do it again. I but would flashing forward, you did do. There was a production at the Long Wharf a few yeah. years ago with with a revised book and uh, even some totally new songs new that somebody wrote that I did not write. And there was a, a, re, a revival that went very well in Connecticut. Uh, in fact, it played a few places, and, and one and in Florida, the Coconut Grove, to terrific reviews. I have a plan now. Uh, I would like to do it with a, a Latino bent to it. I think it because it just it's about a, a minority poor group. Even in the original, it was about the Bonapartes, the Italians, and the, the tenements. Uh, and I'd love to do it. Some of the songs, I think, would score extremely well with a uh, Latin beat, and uh, that's an ambitious ambition of mine. Uh, but, but Sammy ran the show. He had the director fired. He brought in new writers. Uh, he, uh, he, when he sang a song a certain way with the wrong notes, which used to kind of rankle, that, that was it. I, if I tried changing him, he'd say, what, what? You know, uh, he, was, he was who he was, and I was who I am. <laughs> well, Bye Bye Birdie, 1960, 
Flash forward a decade to 1970, your fifth show on Broadway, another big hit show based on uh, a very well-known backstage drama, a play uh, all about Eve, and now turned into a musical, Applause, starring Lauren Bacall. How did that come about? Well, first of all, if I may correct you, it wasn't a play. It was a movie. A movie. It was a, a screen. Yeah, a movie. Well, the reason is that there, there, the, it, it came about uh, through Joe Mankiewicz, who wrote this incredible, uh, what I call a masterpiece of a screenplay, uh, all about Eve. It's flawless. And uh, the idea to do it was uh, a man by the name of Lawrence Kasha, though I had, you know, this is just talking. Uh, so it doesn't mean anything. But I had entertained the idea in my mind before that. I'm not saying that for any credit. It's just that it meant something to me. And then Larry came up with it and got Larry Kasha, got the backing. Uh, and um, we wrote an entirely different version with another writer, a wonderful writer. Um, and uh, 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 what's his name? Brown, who um, <laughs> this is terrible. He's a close friend who wrote The Wiz also. Uh, and uh, Bacall didn't William like Brown. that. You're and referring to William Brown. What? William, William, Bill Brown. Brown. Yeah. yeah. Boy, my age is showing. Uh, and uh, it was a wonderful script. Bacall said she couldn't do these words. And she had him canned. Uh, and uh, he was paid and is paid. Uh, so he's made, he's done handsomely by it. And uh, brought in Betty and Adolph. And who, Betty Compton and Adolph Green. Betty, Betty Compton and Adolph Green, who are the most wonderful collaborators anybody could ask for. Whatever the situation, whether it be crisis or artistic, or they were just there writing, typing, and, and, and it was always turned out wonderfully. And uh, that, was, that was a show that was blessed in many ways. I don't feel, frankly, that it's uh, my best score because something happened before it which uh, had a big influence on me, and that something was... Uh, uh, the show, um, you know, the first rock show, uh, Hair. Hair, and which was magnificent. I saw it first uh, at the public, and uh, it, it had an effect like nothing I'd ever seen on me and obviously on the world. And Clive Barnes, uh, bless his heart, wrote at a point, from now on, every American musical is going to be a rock musical. So... Uh, so that had a, a, a profound influence on me. I thought he must be right because there was something in the air. But this show was already written, and it was a, you might call it a middle-class uh, American musical theatrical thing. And uh, so I tried to uh, be a little more with it in some of the songs, and I feel as though I landed in a territory which hadn't been mine from the start. And, and there were little things that, for me, uh, maybe this is a dumb thing to say on, you know, on radio, but for me, I felt that they, they weren't, I, I didn't hit, you know, the keys. When you're studying piano, the, the piano teacher says, feel the bottom of a... I, I was a little bit away in, on certain things. Nevertheless, it was a great inspiration. I did a, the music for a film called uh, There Was a Crooked Man, which Joe Mankiewicz directed and wrote. So I got to know him, and he was very helpful. And uh, any time I talk about applause, which has generated a lot of money for a lot of people, 
uh, I always have to mention that it came from a masterpiece, which Betty and Adolf used very freely, and of course it was an inspiration to me all all my life. And Joe is rarely mentioned in the same breath, and it was it was this inspiration that. Given that you're one of the real masters of the Broadway musical over the past several decades, since you bring it up, what do you think the effect of rock music has been on Broadway over those past few decades? And what is the place of rock music on Broadway and the American popular song? And how how do they relate, since it so clearly affected you very early on in a project? Well, I'm not uh, deaf to things that uh, people are writing, what they're writing about, the difference of the beat, you know. Rock has a very solid four beat, and it's very often about nothing, and I don't say that only in a way that I, it is a bit of a put-down, because you mentioned Elvis Costello before. Uh, I happen to be a big fan of his, and once even appeared on a radio program. He wouldn't remember, but I remember, and I thought... Gee, what a smart man this is. Uh, but uh, a lot of it uh, has nothing but a a lot of it. I don't want to sound like, like an old fart now. Uh, see, I said something in, on radio. Uh, a, a great deal of it appeals to the uh, to rather uh, smaller instincts of people. It's a, it's about uh, it's about getting together and. Uh, and uh, a, a kind of group behavior. I went last night to, actually with my wife, to a hip-hop, African uh, hip-hop uh, concert at uh, Alice Tully Hall because I'm aware of it. And once again, uh, the music started by going tom 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 now in this particular case it was a machine as it always uh, very often is but even though it was a machine everybody got up and started going like this standing on the uh on standing up and i said they are listening to a machine they're listening to a machine which is able to go tom 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 even if it weren't i mean that was still the effect and there is a, a quality that's mindless about a great deal of rock. On the other hand, <laughs> uh, there is something that's apparently super, super meaningful about the political and uh, sexual content of rock, which is not my world. And I don't know how to adapt to it in many ways. I mean, I can't write like Bob Dylan. Uh, I, I know those chords pretty well. And uh, and I think he's uh, he's very smart, Bruce Springsteen. I don't, can't claim to know that much of his music and all, but I'm away from it. I, so the the answer is I'm aware of it, but I don't know what to do about it. I am who I am, and uh, I figure at my stage, it's uh, people going to like that. Or not. But how do you think it's influenced just in general the work the other work that you see on Broadway, not you specifically, but what it's what it's done to the tradition? Because well, that's I can't tell. So I mean, a, a, a piece like um, what is it, Hairspray, uh, which is a uh, I hope. I mean, I, I know this composer, and he's very very nice, a very good man, generous, warm, talented. 
But it means to be a pastiche, I think. Well, it harks back to an era. I mean, you yourself had a top ten pop song in oh, the yeah. 50s. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm aware of it, and, uh, and I... And I ain't against writing something which is a pa- – well, it turns into a pastiche. Um, but the, the, it's not where my mind goes the first time. I'm trying to have my mind go ways that it didn't intend to go. Well, when, when you wrote Bye Bye Birdie, Elvis was very much yeah. the, the, the top uh, performer what in the land. Did. And you wrote songs for Conrad Birdie that were in the tradition yeah. of rock and but roll. I, I, yes, and I'm not – now, either defending or attacking them, right, they're easy right. to attack. But I, uh, I studied them. Uh, I uh, went to the library and actually got uh, Annette Funicello Records and uh, Fats uh, Domino. Uh, I love my there, and and I could imitate it, but it was meant to be uh, satirical, to be a parody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so now, if you're working on a work now, would you be influenced at all by rap and hip hop and the current style of music? Uh, or if, if by, if by folk music for sure, I always have been. Uh, Lee and I uh, did a version of an American tragedy, and in it we have songs that very, very uh, consciously uh, borrow from the American, what do they call it, the American tapestry or, or something, uh, in the sense that, uh, I would hope, in the sense that uh, Copeland, uh, I mean, Rodeo is something that... Uh, is supposed to, and and in a way does sound like the Far West. Uh, in that respect, yes, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to do something which I think every human adult tries to do, and that is I'm trying to find where my center is, so to speak. Uh, I've certainly been influenced by rock, certainly by Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. Uh, Certainly by Kern, certainly by, uh, you know, Harry Revel and Gordon, you know, all the writers of the 20s, the 30s, rather. Uh, You know, I I find myself loving songs like Tootsie Goodbye or Irving Berlin's, well, you name it, whether it's Alexander. It's all part of, I mean, those, that particular song is before my time, but even so, I, uh, it's part of my uh, heartbeat. I don't know what to do with it except to, to try and find out who I am. Hmm. Well, coming back to your core uh, writing, we need to talk about a show of yours from the mid-'70s. And I have on fairly good authority that uh, your adaptation of the classic comic book Little Orphan Annie was kicking around for years. And despite three big hits on your uh, on your resume – Nobody was jumping on this show right oh. away. Oh yes, that's <laughs> uh, how long does this program? Am I understating? <laughs> Am I understating the case? I've heard how long is this years? program? Yeah, one can go on forever on this one. And, and of course, we're talking about Annie. Yeah, uh, we auditioned as we did Birdie. But you know, I've had a, a, a three or four big shows, and invariably they're the ones that have the most trouble gathering interest and money. Uh, Annie was probably the champion in that case. I mean, we played, Martin and I, so many uh, auditions of it uh, that we could have uh, done the whole show ourselves on the stage, except for the fact that... Uh, Neither of you could fit into the red we dress. We didn't look that good. <laughs> uh, nobody was interested. Nobody saw And that's only fair. And uh, uh, because it hadn't been done, and it was it was sentimental. And I had also, Lee and I had also done... A, uh, a, a cartoon before, which 
was not a commercial success. It's it was a bird, critical. it's a plane, it's Superman. Was, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. So um, even when Martin, uh, whom I'd met the same time I met Dick Van Dyke, we were both in a show called uh, The Girls Against the Boys by Arnold Horwitt uh, that Albert Selden produced. And I was the piano player, and uh, Martin was in the, uh, in the, in the company. And uh, when he told me about this idea, and Tom Meehan was the same way, he called me and he said, we'd always said we wanted to write together because I always thought he was talented. And, and, uh, and when he told me this idea, I went, whoa. And so did Tom. And uh, he literally talked us into it. I don't know how he did to this day. So, so it was Martin Charnin came to you? Martin so, Charnin came to me. Which is why you didn't work with Lee on this. He had been working yeah. with Lee all those years. Right. Yeah, there, there was no... I'm working with Lee on a show called Marty now, which threatens to be on next season. Uh, we <laughs> we are this close to having the theater, but we don't have it yet, so uh-huh. I, the New York Times can't announce it. But it is very close. We're all set on staff and stars and everything like that. And uh, uh, it, it must be kind of interesting, though, in a professional relationship like you had with Lee all those years and still continue to have, that uh, now here you have the new kid on the block, Martin Charn, and yeah. suddenly a collaborator, and this becomes the show of yours that ran yeah. the longest of all of them. I think I'd be blind not to see that it bothered Lee a great uh-huh. deal. But on the other hand, we had that kind of a relationship and, and with all the pluses and minuses, the minuses being that we are so close that like a marriage, I mean, I, there are traits of his that get me crazy. And it goes without saying I would get him crazy too. We were a little bit too close. Some people get divorced, uh, but it being uh, my art form uh, – it was just a question of going on, and we have different uh, schedules, different timings. He he lives a, a very very healthy and uh, life, and I lead a very unhealthy life because I just love to work day and night. And, uh, and there were aspects, but we love one another. He's my closest friend, and you know I would not hesitate for a moment if Lee ever said to me, "I have an idea for a show," or you know. But he's not that way. Lee's very retiring and. Uh, he comes from Ohio, and, you know, I'm a driven West Side Jewish New Yorker, and uh, all the things that are good about that have worked for us and will continue to work. So when you and Lee work together, who drives the relationship? Are you the driving force, do you think? Oh, I wish he were here. Um, I would say that I am the driving force more. Not to say I – yeah, I, I, I think I would have to say that. So this is one of the uh, – probably the most asked questions – uh, lyrics or music, which comes first? Does it make a difference? What, what's, what's your style of working? In, in, in Lee's and my case, the, it would be a time when I, at the piano, and he sitting right near there, we would generate together a, a, a kind of electricity. Would, would he give you a lyric that you'd make up the melody? Or would you? It's been play done that way, and it's been done the other way more often. I, I like to write the music first, but uh, very often... Uh, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, to give you a, a kind of hokey example, but it's one that I recently wrote about. So I remember when we went to Hollywood to write the film of, of, of uh, Bye Bye Birdie, 
uh, we were asked by uh, the people at Columbia Pictures to write a title song. And it's not as though we'd never thought of it. We had thought of doing something like that in New York because they're very valuable. You know, a song on radio, as you guys know, is a very, very valuable commodity. Uh, it transcends advertising because it's in people's minds. But we, we decided we couldn't do it. But they wanted it, and they wanted it for this new star-to-be, uh, and margaret and they paid us a great deal of money. So we tried. And I remember the scene well, although Lee may, if he hears this, argue with aspects of it. But I remember we had eaten our fill and rested our fill and uh, done our uh, sardonic views of Hollywood. And suddenly we were in a room with a piano and we said, what are we going to do? And I remember saying, uh, I said, well, I got a really banal idea and I... And I I said it should be something like, and I pounded out these notes, and he said, I like that. And I said, but that is so, such crap, you know. And no, and, and it fit the words. Uh, and then he or I would say, I hate to see, you know, it was uh, 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 by. And I, I'm, I'm, I can almost remember doing it as an example of what it shouldn't be, mm-hmm. but that kind of those chords and all, and Lee swallowed it, and uh, et cetera. And I think we f- we flung 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 words back Fling, at each flung, other. Flung. I hate to see you go. I'll miss you so, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know, it, we had this this really tacky song. And uh, which people now remember as much as anything. Well, I remember Anne Margaret in that shirtwaist dress singing Bye Bye Bird He. Yeah, Bird He, <laughs> right, with the wind blowing on her right, hair. Right, right. And, you know, Carolyn Lee and Cy Coleman told me the same story about Hey, Look Me Over. They were trying to write the first song for Lucille Ball in that show. And they said, here's, a, here's what it, it should be something like... Uh, Which is a very, very well-worn harmonic pattern. And it's the kind of thing I can see right away that Cy would say, something like this. But they couldn't get it out of their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they felt it was unoriginal. I'm quoting Cy and Carolyn on, on, on that. And finally, <laughs> I don't know what gods <laughs> shine on idiots like us, but somebody said, that's the tune, you know. Well, that was the way with Lee. We had a, a crazy scene, and we suddenly said, that can't be it, and then it was it, suddenly it was done. And uh, You had been working with Lee all those years, and now suddenly here you are working with Martin Charnin on Annie. Well, all those years I was doing other things. I'd written a number of operas, mostly on the serious uh-huh. side, but I had uh, worked with other people, and... Uh, uh, written songs with others. Uh, it, it was a part of my personality that uh, that Lee was aware of, and uh, uh, frankly, uh, I think he's just a different person. He didn't want to put up with that. I mean, I, I don't call it three in the morning, but I'm the kind of person who, at three in the morning, before we both got married, uh, you know, would would tend to say. We got to meet at six, and he'd say, "What do you mean six? I'm no." And I'd say, "Well, you know, we, we're just different, and uh, and we're both very good." Well, using the analogy of being married, you quote married unquote to, to Lee all those years. Suddenly, yeah. now you're dating again with Martin Charnin. Did you have to reinvent yourself? Did you have to learn a different work? Habit? No, I think Lee was just a generous, warm. But, but I'm, no, but I'm saying in terms of working with Martin Charnin, he's a different different person to work with. Did you yeah. have to then work differently yourself? 
Yes, but it was no problem. I mean, uh, uh, able to uh, he, Martin liked. He, Martin was very cut and dried. Liked me to write the tune, and if he liked the tune, he would uh, he would set it. It, it was that simple. Uh, in only one case did he write the lyric first, and that was uh, uh, the Hard Knock Life. That was the first thing we wrote together, and he gave me the whole lyric. So he, he gave you the lyric. And the he, whole lyric, and, and I said to him, I said, Martin, it's very good, but I said, nobody uses the expression hard knock life. <laughs> <laughs> but so how did the melody come to mind? How did you? Uh, because I'm, I've trained myself to, uh, you know, I could right now, if I wanted to make a fool of myself, I could, I could do, it's the hard knock life for us. The hard knock life for us, instead of treating you. But you know, I sit down and I, I do a lot of sketching. I've always uh, sketched, and uh, I kind of liked the angularity of what I did come up with, and uh, that was it. As our time is starting to draw to a close, uh, as we've talked a lot about your collaborators and collaboration and who you've worked with. So it's very interesting to me that in your most recent new project on stage, a musical called You Never Know, which was done last season at Trinity Rep up in uh, Rhode Island, you were pretty much your own collaborator. You had someone working with you on the book, but it was music, lyrics, and book. Yeah. And she came in later, uh, um, Renee Graf. All uh, by all by Charles Strauss. Yeah, it seems to be the first time, certainly in your stage uh, career, your, your musical theater career, that that you were doing it all. What what led you to that? Well, first of all, it, I, I've written a couple of operas where I did it all. Right. Well, that's why I distinguished the uh, musical theater. And uh, the other thing was, uh, this is a, a uh, for me a unique piece that's about a composer. And it's about a composer who has uh, emotionally uh, emptied the vessel and, uh, and has a great hero, as I have had in my life with several of my teachers, who what they said to me about music, how they directed me, have, have remained in my heart always. Uh, they were like father figures. And he has one great hero... Uh, turns out to be his grandfather, who ended up a drunkard, really, but who taught him music. And uh, my play opens when uh, he has just died. He's died about a month ago. And uh, this young man who's never finished anything in his life, he he smokes a little bit, he, uh, he can't get his life together, decides he finds some songs in an old suitcase when he cleans out his apartment. He decides to honor his grandfather that he's going to uh, perform these songs in his studio, like like Nola's. Right where uh, we are today. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a typical Manhattan studio. He invites 50 people. And nobody shows up. And then some a couple of people do show up. And uh, they find, through somebody from NYU, they find uh, the remnants of a script even. And they put on, they start performing the show, and the director, a brilliant director by the name of Amanda Dennert, who did Annie, by the way. Uh, Up at Trinity, in, yeah, in a rather unconventional production. Very unconventional. Uh, uh, it, it, how she brings it to life, the, the musical becomes real, and the people who are performing it become real actors, and the scripts that they're holding become uh, unnecessary. 
and it becomes a musical which uh, uh, I hope reflects a great part of this, the unconscious in him, and he actually forms a relationship in it. It's, it's, it's terribly interesting. Can you give us a little preview of the music? Uh, yes. Play a few uh, bars, see, perhaps, uh, even if it's a work in progress. Well, there was a work in progress I was doing before I came here, but I, I know I'll just screw it up. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> is there is there something else that I could uh, do that uh, uh, this is uh, mu- music uh, uh, <laughs> music it's always time for music happy days or hard times music leads the way Hey, music. Uh, oh, shoot. Music. <laughs> it's all around, man. Take it. I can't remember. We, 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 could, we could use that as a jingle for this radio station. Just have to add on to the end of it, XM28 on Broadway. We'd have a jingle. It's great. I'd be proud. <laughs> how, would, how, would you, how would you write XM28 on Broadway? Music to go with that. To go... Now you talk about this. No, just if we were to say, "Hey, let's write a jingle for XM well, Twenty Eight on Broadway." For, uh, how, would, how would you hear that musically? This one, or, or, what, what, or whatever. Yeah. Well, now that you put that in my mind, I think I would write music like like you want to hear it on XM Twenty Eight on Broadway. How, how would you make that musically? Uh, how would you? Write the music to back up the lyric XM28. Well, I, I, I was playing it, yeah, which yeah. was uh, music. Music leads the way. Hey, two notes could lead to three or four notes. Some tunes don't need more notes. I mean, that is a song that's in this show, but I'm, I'm still working on the lyric, as you can tell. <laughs> okay. uh, that would be one. I used to work in an advertising agency, uh, so uh, I know some of the problems. I can't always solve them. But, uh, we should talk to you after the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> one final thing. Um, you came in wearing a baseball cap that says ASCAP on it, and I know that you founded the um, ASCAP Musical Theater Workshop here in New York. But what, what is that? Well, the cap is because they had a party. No, but I mean, what what is the workshop? (laughs) Oh, the workshop is, um, uh, I founded it, I guess, around 20 years ago. I I ran it for 15 years. Uh, It was an attempt to, you know, I I got a usual amount of mail where people said, how do you do this, what what comes first, you know, and all that. And uh, BMI had a workshop that Lehman Angle was running, and ASCAP didn't. And so a lot of the newer writers were being steered over in that direction. And uh, so I suggested to the board that ASCAP wouldn't. They, they didn't. We, we, it was a wonderful workshop, by the way. Uh, every week, I was able to invite luminaries from the, uh, from the theater, excuse me, to sit at and, and judge. We had Frank Rich and Hal Prince and Tommy Toon and, and all the set designers and all the... Uh, Newspaper people, everyone, and, and and I would have four plus myself, Steve Sondheim, uh, all the other writers, Stephen Schwartz, uh, and people would. And the only thing I asked of them was that if it were at all possible to do 
to do the shows themselves the way I'm seeing for you guys. I said that it's the way I was trained, and I feel you get into it more than if you hire some singers who are not going to learn it. So if you could, so I encouraged everyone to perform their shows. I can't tell you who was in there. The guy who wrote Rent was in there. Uh, I think Lynn Aarons at one point was, uh, I can't remember. But uh, a hundred writers that you would know of today, they all passed through. And they had the uh, uh, Frank Rich saying, well, I don't understand why, you know. And it was not it was not fair, but it was life. And I said, that's what you got to do. You got to play for a lot of idiots and a lot of very smart people who steer you wrong. And uh, and uh, that was basically the workshop, and it was it was terrifically successful. We, we used to have a hundred people a week; you couldn't even get in, and uh, and it was very enjoyable. Uh, and after fifteen years, I started boring myself. I would say so many of the same things to people. I said, uh, "New life." <laughs> well, on that note, uh, maybe you'd like to play us off as we do our close. <laughs> uh, we'll say, Charles I... Strauss, thank you for being with us on Downstage Center play? today. And you can just play, put uh, on a happy uh, face. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll do our close while you do that. <laughs> well, Charles, and I do want to say before we close, there are so many shows of yours we didn't touch today. Hopefully we'll, we'll bring you back and hear more about them. But in the meantime, for the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs as well as all the educational and media programs of the American Theatre Wing are available online, on demand, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. Again, thank you, Charles Strauss, for being with us on Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.